Well, this morning we find ourselves in sort of a in-between Sunday. Uh, we typically like to do uh, series of series of messages, and last fall we finished a series we entitled 3G that we focused on grace and gratitude and growth. And then we did a Christmas series through Advent called The Greatest Gifts. Last Sunday, uh, a great message from Corey Anderson to start the new year. Pastor Ken and Marg are away returning uh, sometime uh, today or tomorrow, I believe, and uh, will be back with us next Sunday. And we'll start uh, a new series next week. And it's a series that we've been praying about as a staff, and we haven't quite decided yet, so I'm sure Pastor Ken has been giving it lots of thought while he's been away, on a series of messages based on either James or First Peter, and both would be great books to study. And so I found myself in sort of never-never land this week with this open Sunday, and uh, when you face uh, the reality of that as a, as a, as a pastor, and you kind of go, now what? And uh, of all of the topics, of all of the themes, of all of the scriptures in, in the Bible, of wherever we could turn, where do we go this Sunday? Well, as it turns out, I've been thinking about the subject of suffering. Now, I know that sounds like what a great and exciting way to start the new year. We come to church and we get a message on suffering, just what I wanted to hear this morning. But bear with me, because I hope that uh, through this message we might be able to offer some perspective, some hope, and even some encouragement for those going through times of suffering. Because the reality is, we see it all around us. Globally, you see what's happened. Sometimes we're removed. We see, uh, we haven't in the last recent little while seen any kind of horrific natural disasters that I immediately come to mind. But there's famines, there's things happening in the world, uh, persecution of Christians in, in, uh, in Sudan, and, and just horrific things that often we are so far removed from. But it is happening. We know that it's happening locally on many levels as well. And I know just in many of your lives that there are things that you are carrying that is causing uh, a significant amount of pain and suffering as well. And personally... We've, uh, we've been, our, had our share of suffering, I think, over the years as well. And uh, we've experienced death in our family, close loved one, Tina's brother, in uh, 2003, passed away, so it's eight years already, but still very fresh, 34 years old. I'll say a little bit more about that, that later. Um, facing the reality of coming back to Edmonton and having aging parents, my Mom is 79, my dad's 82. And some of you know about my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer in May of, uh, of this past year and uh, has been in out, of, out of the hospital uh, in December. Uh, th- probably total, I think, spent about three weeks in December over Christmas and into the new year uh, in hospital. And uh, so it's tough to see, tough to watch. Um, my parents celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary this, this fall. And so to watch my dad uh, dealing with the reality of what's facing his wife of 60 years, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of pain. And I know that many of you can experience that too. And so often when we go through those difficult times, I think inevitably the question we tend to ask is, why me, God? 
Of all the people, you know, why couldn't this happen to somebody else, but why me? And there are many here this morning, as I said, that I know have, and many are going through challenging times. And the fact is, if we're not, inevitably, we probably will in one way or another. But somehow or another, we have been encouraged, I think, at different times and in different ways, been encouraged to believe that the Christian life is all about success and victory. And certainly there's a measure of truth to that. But what happens when life doesn't go as we planned it? Oftentimes, all is not well. We face trials and trouble. We face difficulties. We face illness, despair, unemployment, a number of things that come our way in the reality of life. And I believe it would be helpful for us, even as we start this new year, to to have a theology of suffering. In other words, where is God in the midst of the pain? And what's he up to? And as I said, my hope is that when we can come to understand that Christians can and they will face times of suffering in their lives, and yet in the midst of it are able to praise God for his faithfulness in and through it all, or at least be a step in that direction. Now, of course, I think there's a danger in speaking about suffering that in addressing a subject like this, one can be quite theoretical and and in the end, perhaps quite unhelpful to those going through deep valleys. We could also become quite philosophical and somehow divorce our discussion away from any kind of biblical foundation. You know, the kind of talk that can stimulate the mind but never really settles the heart. Essentially, just a lot of hot air, and if you're in the midst of suffering, you know that of all things you don't need, It's just a lot of philosophical rambling. The other danger is that one can adopt a very simplistic approach, which I think sometimes ends up hurting people rather than healing people. The kind of advice given by Job's friends, always ready with a quick answer, and most of it was extremely unhelpful. Some of us somehow think that in seeking to help others, in wanting to affirm God's faithfulness and the experience of suffering, that if we can just, you know, bang out a couple of scripture verses, you know, Romans 8, 28 seems to be a favorite of many. And that if people would just take those verses to heart and really believe it, that they can just get on with their lives. That approach is likely the result of never having truly been broken ourselves, that we've never had our own life-shattering experience or we've come to use some, some uh, other so-called biblical approach to just explain away the suffering. And perhaps you've heard that. You know, there's sin in your life and therefore you're suffering. Or you have a lack of faith and therefore you're suffering. And the fact is that when people are experiencing suffering, there is a place for eloquent silence. In the experience of suffering, silence from those desiring to give counsel is often far greater in its help than a lot of talk. We're not going to do an exhaustive study on the book of Job this morning, but let me just remind you that Job is the character in the Bible that went through unimaginable and indescribable pain. And basically, in chapter 1, the, the story sets itself up where God and Satan approaches God and says, 
you know, if I take everything away from Job, he will curse you. He will turn his back on you. God says, well, go ahead, have at it. And so Satan wipes out his family, takes away everything that he has. Just, it's just a complete and total devastation of his entire life. How did Job respond to that? Beginning in verse 20, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, which was a, a sign of just mourning and grief. Then he fell to the ground, get this, in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What an unbelievable perspective to have in, in, in light of this unimaginable tragedy in his life. The story goes on. And, and Satan goes back to God and he says, well, basically, you know, you didn't do anything physically to him and, and therefore he didn't turn his back on you and curse you. Satan, or God then again says to Satan, well, have at it. And the scripture says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And I'm wondering, did he do that because it was the only way that he could relieve, thought that he could relieve the pain of, of all these sores? But what a horrific picture. Are you with me? I knew this was a light and warm, fuzzy message for today. His wife said to him now, are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. Get it over with. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He still didn't turn his back on God. Now the interesting thing is, I set that up because then his friends come along. And at first they got it right. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Okay? Because you've got the picture, right? It's pretty gory, but keep that in mind. His friends could hardly recognize him. That's how horrific he looked. They began to weep aloud. Okay? They, they, they were broken for their friend. Lots to learn about that. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. So they now, too, were, were mourning for, for the, for the, with, with and for their friend Job. And I love this. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. There's a place for eloquent silence. When somebody's going through great pain, you can just come and sit and be in their presence and say nothing. The problem is, after seven days, I think the friends had enough. And so if you go through the rest of Job, you see that they all start to talk. 
And they start to all try to rationalize and explain what has happened. And they, they just keep going, right? And each time, Job kind of responds, no, it's not about that. And he's trying to keep his integrity, trying to keep his focus on God. And they're trying to find reasons for why this all happened to him. And finally, Job says to him, them, chapter 13 now, You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent, for you, that would be wisdom. I love that. That's a great way of just saying, you know what? Stop talking because you're making a fool out of yourself. So he just kind of tells them off. So how do we have at least some biblical perspective of suffering? How do we have a a perspective on this matter of God's faithfulness in suffering? Because his faithfulness is displayed even in the suffering of his children. The Bible is clear on that. And first of all, we need to live in the realm of reality rather than in the realm of illusion. So let me just give you some really simple things that, that you'll probably go, yeah, I know that. And that's true, but I'm just trying to reaffirm this. First of all, suffering does exist, and it does hurt. It really does. Suffering is a reality in everyone's life at one time or another. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. And in that immediate context, they were suffering for being Christians, declaring the name of the Lord. But I believe that the evidence of Scripture throughout reinforces the fact that suffering exists in the life of everybody, Christians, unbelievers alike. It doesn't matter. There is suffering in our world. And so often you'll, you'll hear people talk about like, oh, you know, you, you, you won't believe what happened to so-and-so. Can you believe that they were diagnosed with and, and fill in the blank? Almost as if we're surprised that that happens. You see, God doesn't somehow suspend the laws of human nature and physical existence simply because we are Christians. If you're not looking where you're going as you're walking down the street and you walk into a pole, you just banged into a pole and your nose will bleed just like the rest of any other other person would. So we shouldn't be surprised, right? Suffering does exist and it does hurt. It's real. And First Peter is full of suffering. Life as a whole is full of it. And we know that. As a pastor over 20 years now, I've walked into situations and with families through unbelievable things. Even two years into being an associate pastor at church in Calgary, I accompanied our senior pastor to go to a young mother's home. They had two young boys to deliver the news that their father had been killed while at work. still remember being part of that funeral, one of my sort of first funerals as a pastor, and I went, this is unbelievable. It doesn't have to be death. I remember getting a frantic phone call from a, a young wife who had just discovered her husband's infidelity and the pain and the horror of that experience. It's real, and we're not immune from it. Secondly, suffering comes in all kinds of different ways. First uh, Peter 1, verse 6, talks about having been grieved by various trials. 
And grief here really is, is expressive of the, of the mental impact of enduring hardship. The trials that were coming and crushing their spirits. And he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer. Uh, the little while needs to be understood in view of eternity. So even a lifetime sometimes of pain and suffering is really a little while in view of eternity. So even to suffer for an extended period of time is still in the economy of God a, a little while. That's not to say that it feels like a little while, especially those who are, who are suffering mental anguish. A minute can seem like a day and a day can seem like a year. A year can seem like it's never, ever going to end. But this trial, these trials come in different ways. But, but here's the hope in that, that suffering, thirdly, is inevitably limited in its time frame. It's inevitably limited. Okay? There's, a, there's a time frame to it. thought about this as uh, in the fall I was getting my flu shot. And if you've ever had a needle given to you, what is it almost inevitably, what do they always say? Just a little poke. What do they say? Wiggle your toes, take your mind off it. This is, you're, you're, it's just a little poke. Bam, right? It's just, it's going to be over. And you, you feel that little jump and, yeah, okay, that's not so bad. It's over. It's limited in its time frame. Paul writing to the Corinthians in a second letter, chapter 4, verses 16 and 18 says, so we're not, get, go, we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration excuse me, prepared for us. That's far more here. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now, listen, are here today gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. So when we are suffering, it might feel like forever, but it is limited in its time frame. Fourthly, in the pain of suffering, there is the presence of God. God is there in the reality of our suffering. Exodus Chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. See, they might have been tempted to believe that, you know, here we're suffering under this slavery, but now where is God? Where is this God that we've worshipped and held on to? Where is God in all of this? Did he just leave? Did he turn his back on us? And yet the scripture says that God was concerned about them. He didn't forget about them. He cared for them in the midst of their suffering. Isaiah 63, 9, Surely they are my people. And in all their distress, he too was distressed. Again, just a reminder that when we experience pain and distress and despair, God understands that and he can identify with that. Hebrews 4 verse 14 and 15 reminds us that we have a great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So when we are tempted to believe 
like, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. We need to remember that Jesus understands. It's true that there may not be another living soul that truly understands and can appreciate what we're going through, but we can be confident of this, that in the pain of our suffering is the presence of a faithful God. John Stott said, and I love this quote, we are not to envision, envisage God on a deck chair, but on a cross. It's a good picture for us. Think of the unimaginable suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. But God was in that. We've just come through the Christmas season, been reminded over and over again about Emmanuel. God with us. And there's so much truth in that because He is with us. He really is present even in the pain of our suffering. And fifthly, just trying to have a bit of a biblical perspective on suffering. Suffering in and of itself does not lead a person into a deeper relationship with God. Let me explain that. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Because the reality is, suffering, if we're not careful, can embitter us. It can sideline us. But in the midst of our suffering, we need to ask, what is this doing to me? Maybe you've heard the, the, the phrase, is this something that's going to make you bitter or better? There's a choice that we're faced with. One woman loses her son gets angry with God, turns his back on God, turns away from her friends that want to support her in that, and is embittered. And another, through the pain and horror of the tragedy, turns only to the faithfulness of God, says, I don't understand, but yet I will praise you. You see, in the experience of suffering... Do we, do we draw closer to God? Or does it press a wedge between us? And that's why I say suffering doesn't necessarily draw us closer to God, but it can. I've mentioned before, and I mentioned at the outset of this sermon, that eight years ago, Tina's 34-year-old brother passed away. And there was cancer involved, and then some complications from some other more long-term health issues. The thing that was so unbelievable about that was that Jimmy had given his life to serving God in full-time ministry. He was a junior high youth pastor. Kids loved him. He was at a big church in California. Hundreds of kids would come out on a weekly, weekly basis. And when Jimmy was going through that, this big church, even on a Sunday morning, gathered together in their corporate worship and humbled themselves before God and out of desperation, everybody kneeled that Sunday morning and prayed for for Jimmy's healing. Because, of course, that was what we all wanted. 
But it was obvious that in talking to some people that they thought that God would only have been glorified if Jimmy was healed. They didn't have a theology which which says that God is also glorified in taking Jimmy to himself and then leaving behind a legacy of those who will remember him and his faithfulness and will tell others of the way that he faced death with faith and with anticipation. And you can go to Modesto, California and go to the church and the accompanying school and there's a ballpark now named in his honor. He loved to play baseball. And there's a plaque there that talks about who he was, what his values were, and that he loved God and he loved his kids. Can God be glorified? Yeah, he can. Because hundreds or, or years from now, hundreds of kids will tell others, not a story of success of how Jim was almost dead and then got up and danced around his bed, but a sad story of how a 34-year-old man was removed from usefulness in the ministry and that in it all and through it all, God never once violated his faithfulness. You see, God is glorified even in the death of his saints. His faithfulness is so vast, so so comprehensive, that it embraces not only our successes, but also our disappointments. That his providence orders all things, the good days and the bad days. That we don't somehow or another have to dress God up and make him acceptable to the minds of unbelieving men and women who only have the idea of some triumphal God, a God that's going to cure all of the problems. No, our God is a God who has manifested, who, who manifested the essence of his faithfulness with a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was that an expression of faithlessness? I believe it was the very climax of his faithfulness. Alas, And did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? Yes. Yes, he would. He suffered for us. And the reality is, is we experience suffering ourselves. And so suffering exists and it does hurt. Suffering comes in all different kinds of ways and forms. Suffering is inevitably limited in its time frame. And in the pain of suffering, there is the presence of God. And suffering in and of itself does not lead a person into a deeper relationship with God. But how then does God use suffering? What purposes does God have for suffering? And I'm going to run through a bunch of thing, lists here. It, it, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a selective list. And, and we could probably sit down and come up with 10 more or 20 more. But let me just give you a couple of things that 
maybe will help you somehow gain perspective on how God might be using suffering in our lives. And the first is an obvious one, to develop perseverance. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, in the opening verses here, James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. From a physical perspective, you've probably heard the analogy, no pain, no gain. And I think that's true in the spiritual reality as well. That when we experience pain and suffering, there can be great gains made and perseverance in particular. Secondly, to bring us to maturity. James goes on to write in verse 4, so don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Which is good, good advice for us, right? Because sometimes we, we get into a difficult situation and it's like, man, I just want to get out of this. I want to break from this. I, I just don't want to have to deal with this anymore. But don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it, pain, suffering, do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. If you were to read Hebrews chapter 5, 8, and 10, you realize that this is true of Jesus himself. You see, in shunning trials, the possibility exists that we could miss blessings. Because if our lives is, you know, all sun, all the time, might just be in the desert. You see, I, even as a pastor, can have great and wonderful days of encouragement. Sometimes there's bad days. That's what ministry can be like. But life is like that too. And in ministry, you can get just enough little encouragements to keep you from totally losing it. And then you get enough of the other stuff to keep you from becoming an egomaniac. There's a good tension to live with that somewhere between uncontrollable egoism and total dejection. And what helps to that end? God's faithfulness in suffering. Augustine said, Trials come to prove us and to improve us. It's a great perspective. And many unfortunately, are tempted to run away from the very things that in the province of God he has brought into the reality of your experience to mold us and make us into the image of his son. You see, it is true. The Father does know best. Thirdly, can assure us of our, son- our sonship. Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So the assurance of being a son of God, a daughter of God, is in the experience of suffering. Fourthly, to prove the genuine nature of our faith. Deuteronomy 8, 1 1 through 3. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and... Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, Rather, 
We live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. First Peter continues this and echoes this thought that trials and suffering can prove the genuine nature of our faith. These trials, he says, will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ or Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, we have the familiar story of Abraham and Isaac. It's repeated again in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. It's a, a shortened version of that. But it's clear that in, in that experience of Abraham's life, offer up your son Isaac to me. God was testing Abraham to prove the genuine nature of his faith. And he does the same with us. Fifthly, suffering can develop in us humility. Can develop humility. Excuse me. Second Corinthians, Paul writes in verses chapter twelve, verse seven through ten. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, is how he saw it, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, or for when I am humble, then I am strong. Sixthly, although I realize that these aren't numbered, so you have no idea what number I'm on now unless you're writing them down. Suffering can keep us on track. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. And this just speaks to the fact that is difficult for us to appreciate sometimes, but there can be a corrective element to suffering. It can remind us of what's important, bring us back to God in many ways. And so again, as I said earlier, we have the opportunity. We experience some suffering. We can blame God and we can become angry with God. Or... We can try to understand and embrace that somehow, in some way, God has a plan and a purpose behind it all. Seven, to deepen our insight into the heart of God. Jose is an amazing story of a husband whose wife was unfaithful. And we can imagine the pain of that, but ultimately the relationship is restored. But it's a picture in that whole book of God's relentless love for the unfaithful and for us. And so as the pain and suffering that Hosea experienced while his wife was unfaithful helps us understand and appreciate that God has a heart for us too and that he experiences pain and understands our pain. 
Three more. To equip us to help others in their trials. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4, And now with the comfort you have received, you will be able to comfort others. Because when your heart is broken, I believe it becomes more sensitive. And so God can put you then in a place where you can walk alongside other people who have experienced or are experiencing the kind of pain that maybe you experienced previously. You can come alongside them and say, I understand, I walked with you, I've been there, and I know it's hard. To reveal for us what we really love is another way that God can use suffering. Deuteronomy 13.3, The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. See how quickly our priorities change when trials come. In an instance, our our priorities can be rearranged. We very quickly determine who we love and what we love. If your spouse is diagnosed with a serious illness, suddenly it doesn't matter whether the carpet is worn out or not or whether you need new paint on the walls or what, or whatever should be replaced and cleaned up or whatever. All of that stuff is secondary. It doesn't matter anymore because we've come to realize then that some of those things really just don't matter. And so it reorients our priorities and reveals for us what we really love. And lastly, and as I said, this is not an exhaustive list, but a selective list, in order that we might display God's glory. In order that we might display God's glory. Genesis chapter 50 is the end of the story of Joseph and all of the trials that he experienced and I'm not going to go into all all of the details, but it was largely because of what his own brothers did to him, or it was directly because of what his brothers did to him, sold him into slavery, and then all of the events that happened to his life before things kind of turned around, and God used all of those painful circumstances to put in a position of authority to make plans for the future. And and even though there was famine coming, and he knew that through a dream, they, they stockpiled grain, and then his brothers come because they're dealing with the famine, and they come to get grain, and he eventually re- reveals himself to them. And, and they're totally afraid, and rightfully so. They're thinking... We are in for it now. He's going to get back to us or back at us. He's going to exact revenge. But Joseph said to them, verse 19, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When we go through times of suffering, it provides for us an opportunity to really leave a legacy of God's faithfulness. When we talk about the providence of God, it is a reminder simply of the truth that God is in control of all things. And God is present in all things. And that he cares for us in all things. And that he wants the best for us in all things for our good and for his glory. So let me just wrap this up by saying this. There's no sense here that because there's some good things that can come from suffering that we then should be so eager to run out and seek suffering. That's just ridiculous. But when we are experiencing suffering that inevitably will come our way, 
we may be finding ourselves tempted to ask, why me, God? But I want to challenge us to think of this a different way. Why not me? See, we can be honest enough to say that trials will come, challenges will come, and that suffering is a painful reality in the life of Christians. And I know that many of you can identify with that right now. But are we then to deny God as powerless and unable to do anything about it and uncaring? Absolutely not. We are to bless God for his faithfulness even in the midst of suffering.